Well, today we are privileged to be invited to the Lord's table to celebrate the service of communion. And ever since that first time he invited his disciples to come and broke bread the night before he went to the cross, ever since then, believers have come around the table to celebrate this communion, the bread and the cup. We're joining millions of Christian believers even this day who are gathered around his table for worship. Our way of worshiping at the Lord's table is really very simple. We take literally the invitation to break bread and to see in that bread a symbol of, of what Jesus has done in giving himself for us. But there are all kinds of other ways of celebrating and some of them are very impressive in uh, large atmospheres that celebrate God in many ways. And the elements, the cup and the bread are surrounded by uh, ways in which the importance are magnified by the, the robes the priests wear and by the atmosphere of the church and by the very words. In uh, many traditions, the priest is a kind of mediator between the celebrants and the Lord. And in history, uh, sometimes the priest has been a little too special in that he was the one who got to celebrate uh, because he was the only one who got to take both the bread and the wine. The bread was offered to the congregants, but only the priest took the wine. So the priest is essential in most of these traditions for having a communion service. You really can't have it without the priest there to bless it. And the reason for that is in Catholic and uh, Orthodox teaching, when the bread is blessed by the priest, it actually turns into the body of Christ. When the cup is blessed by the priest, it turns into the blood of Christ. And when Jesus said, uh, this is my body, he meant it literally. So this is seen as a miracle that happens in every worship service, and it's very important in those tr traditions. It's a doctrine, if you want to be smart, you can, uh, you can impress your friends with, uh, not yet on that one, Dale. Um, you can impress your friends by using the word transubstantiation, <laughs> because what that means is the body, the cup and the bread are actually turned in to the body and blood. Now, the Lutherans uh, thought that was wrong and so did the other Protestant reformers. And people like us, the Baptists, thought it was very wrong. So what you have in the celebration of communion is everything from transubstantiation, that belief, to consubstantiation, look that one up, you know, that's kind of halfway between, to uh, a memorial service, to a symbolic service, which is what we practice in which we see the elements as not changing, but as having symbolic meaning. Now, all of this masks the fact that we're all 
together worshiping and trying to honor the communion service that the Lord left for us. And the priest's role in these higher church uh, traditions, when they say higher, that's kind of a technical term. It doesn't mean they're any smarter than us. Um, but the priest's role as the mediator has a tradition in the Old Testament now, Dale. And the high priest in the Old Testament was very important in the worship of Israel. Everything he wears is symbolic and is part of the way God uh, asked that the Israelites worship. And he was the only one who could go before God in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, uh, once a year and offer atonement for uh, the sins of the people. So the priest was an important mediator. Now in your New Testament, there are a lot of books that you've read and, and understood without help. But I'll bet the book of Hebrews is one that you haven't read like a novel. Because the book of Hebrews is, gets very deeply into this Old Testament priesthood and into the symbolism behind it. And uh, the book of Hebrews talks about the role of the high priest and says Jesus now plays that role. He is the high priest, and the animal sacrifices those temples uh, of the, t the Old Testament temple is replaced by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. The celebration of the Lord's table is a commemoration of that. So you see how all those priestly member, mem memories of the Old Testament are very real in the eyes of the early believers because this is the background of, against which they understood Jesus' sacrifice. So our text today is from the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, and we're going to begin with verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Since we have a high priest, um, he's not that one in the church today, although that one is modeled after him, but the great high priest we have is the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to notice how powerful this phrase is, priest. Well, priest separates him from us. High priest. High priest separates him even further. Great high priest. Another degree of separation. And then he has passed through the heavens. That scholars believe that refers to the high priest passing through the curtain into the holiest place. And that so that's another degree of separation. He is the priest no, he is the high priest. No, he is the great high priest. No, he is the one who has passed into the holiest place in the presence of God. But how does that help me gain access to him? He's farther and farther away. And then he adds his name Jesus, the son of God. So now you've got a fifth thing that separates him, makes him different and special from me. Like this is five degrees of separation. And 
this is the one that I'm supposed to come to for salvation. What a contrast. This one who is so far above me, so out of reach. It says in verse 15, very next verse, let me read 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Well, why? Because, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So the wonderful thing about this one who is the fifth degree of separation greater than us is that we have something in common with him. And what we have in common with him is not our strength, but our weakness. Please notice, weakness is not the same as like sin. Weakness is just, it's a non-judging word. And, and in a sense, it gives us the benefit of the doubt here. Our weaknesses may be moral failures, but whether they are or not, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And that word, he sympathizes. If any of you read as, things as radical as the messenger, <laughs> I, I wrote an article about this this week and about someone who, who makes a distinction between sympathy and empathy. And sympathy is a good thing that we ought to have, but empathy, somehow, that's feeling too much. Well, let me tell you, Jesus has empathy. How much empathy does he have? Look at the second part of Hebrews 4.15. But we have one, we, have, we don't have someone who's beyond our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are. Okay, wait now. Wait now. The priest, the high priest, the great high priest, Holy of Holies, the Son of God, he is personally acquainted with all of our most vulnerable, uh, impotent parts with our weaknesses in every respect. Now, I looked that up and uh, found that it's really kind of interesting what they try to grab with this. It's really two phrases. It's in all things, in every dimension, or dimension is a big word for it, but it's almost like he's saying, in your weaknesses, every one of them, and on every level. Okay, it's not just, he, he understands your weaknesses. He's personally acquainted on every level, and he has been tempted tested as we are. Now I put those words kind of with a slash because our use of the word tempted implies uh, that it's a moral issue. But that, that's not what this word means. It's, it doesn't imply that there, there's the possibility of sinning. But it implies that we have no uh, uh, equipment or no tools or no ability to deal with this. So this test is beyond us. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And these temptations were real and they spoke to his specific situation. 
He was tested in every respect, on, in all things, in every possible dimension, by any imaginable measurement. He knows what you're going through. Couldn't help but thinking of this when Raul talked about how he, how helpless he felt when that baby was struggling to be born. Isn't that awful when you can't do anything? Nothing you can do. But it's amazing how many of our life experiences we are just that weak, just that impotent to do anything about the problem. And then there's the additional phrase that says, we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. And I'm sure, you know, that was added to, you know, to uh, head off anyone who thought there was a possibility that Jesus would sin. Uh, and no, no, don't even think that. But I think there's another reason it's put there. It's put there so that we know that our being tested does not necessarily mean that we are morally weak. Our being tested is nothing we should feel ashamed of or guilty about. And we do, don't we? When we go through weakness, we feel shame and guilt, an indication that God sees us as being guilty and shameful, and that is not true. God does not condemn us for our weaknesses. In fact, he identifies with our weaknesses through his son. This is totally about Jesus' weakness so that we can understand how much he empathizes with us in every respect, every nuance of the feeling of helplessness that you have, he feels. And it's when you come to him that way that he promises to answer prayer. Now, the irony is, if you listen to all the popular preachers and victory books about the Christian life, it's the prayer warrior who is the winner. It's the one who perseveres in prayer that is celebrated. It's the one who prays through who gets the victory. I've never prayed through anything, but I may be a little freaky. Prayer is not a demonstration of strength for me. It's not strength, but weakness. It's helplessness. In fact, we, we try to explain things too much to the Lord. We talk about what we want him to do and everything. Man, he knows deeper than we know what our needs are. All we have to do is say, help. And we might have to say it 15 times because we feel it over and over again. Let us, verse 16, let us therefore, because we know that this one who is five degrees separated from us is right there with us in our feelings. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Think of that phrase, throne of grace. Man, we think of the throne of judgment, don't we? 
This is such a surprising, surprising phrase. You, you, have you ever been a, a defendant in, in a trial? Oh, neither have I. <laughs> but just imagine what it's like to feel that there are charges against you and here is this judge in austere robe in this, this formal setting and, and, and you're in this helpless place and, and, and you come before the throne, the throne of judgment and to discover that with the Lord, because of Jesus, this is a throne of grace. And because it is the throne of grace, we can come with boldness. Now, the Lord, this is a few verses before this, in the same chapter, um, we read in verse 12, Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, there's a judge you, you're afraid of. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Isn't that scary? But this is the throne of grace. And so we can come with boldness. Who are, who are the people who are invited to come to the throne of grace with boldness? People who know they are weak. They come in the time of need, he says. That means admitting that they're out of options, that they have no strategy, that they're helpless, that they don't have it all together. You can be bold, not just thankful, but bold at a time like this because your weakness matches his weakness. Or his weakness matches your weakness. Electricity is a great power and we figured out how to harness it and store it. Uh, we uh, have great generators and we are able to transport it long distances. This is immense power that's available here. How do we access it? Well, we climb up on one of those poles and we, we uh, attach our wire to it, right? No, we'd be zapped to smithereens. That's too great a power. We have to go to weakness. A tiny little plug. A tiny little plug. That's the weakest part of the whole journey from the electrical generator to whatever it is you're doing in your house with electricity, is that tiny little plug. Uh, last week, Derek and uh, Pauline uh, Sweet were here from England, and they talked to me afterwards. And one of their issues that day was to find a transformer because English plugs and American plugs don't match. And uh, English plug is that one up there on the right, top right. And it's got three different piece, you know, different prongs uh, rather than two. And they're shaped differently. So there's no way you could fit them into an American plug. Now, isn't that bad planning? Well, no, because the English plug delivers 240 volts, whereas our plug delivers 120. So you don't want them to work interchangeably. So I barely understand this, but that's what I read. 
listen, in Hebrews 4, verse 16, he, match your weakness to his weakness so that we may receive mercy and grace in time of need. Getting the right plug and matching it to the right receptacle. Your weaknesses and his weaknesses. Otherwise, the power will destroy you. But matching your weakness to his weakness, you can come boldly. He comes to us from weakness. And he invites us to come to him from weakness. If we don't come from weakness, and we think we're the great prayer warrior, we're trying to bargain with God from a position of relative strength, well, maybe that works, but I don't see any guarantee here that the power will come to us. But if we come from weakness, admitting that we're in a time of need, we have the assurance that the Lord will answer and we can come with boldness. You will find grace and mercy, not judgment. So today, as you partake of the Lord's Supper, the symbol is a symbol of weakness, of his flesh and blood, of the way he plugged into our humanity. Plug your weakness into his weakness and feel the power surge. That's the invitation to the Lord's table. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at Prayer at AOL.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.